0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com Father, uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. And God, we thank you specifically for uh, this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi that we know as the book of Philippians. Um, Lord, we know that Paul wrote this letter from prison, and he was in lockdown, and yet despite his circumstances, this is a book that is full of uh, the most precious um, revelation of human joy um, despite our surrounded circumstances. So Father, I pray that you would take some of the main themes of this book as I preach through it, as we study through it over the next few weeks, and that you would just shape and mold our hearts, God, I pray that you would make Jesus famous in our hearts. And Lord, I trust you to do um, that work, and I love you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> so we'll be in Philippians chapter 1, we'll be in verses 1 through 2. And I want to give you a little bit of a background on the book before we uh, jump in too much. Uh, the book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul, okay? And Paul planted the church in Philippi roughly about 10 to 12 years before he wrote this letter from a prison cell in Rome. Okay, now the city of Philippi, uh, it was largely uh, a Gentile city that had very little uh, Jewish presence. Okay, so Philippi, as a city, was was essentially a a self-governing. Roman colony that that really idolized what they called a freedom of religion Uh, so long as uh, you didn't exercise your religious freedoms in such a way that it would interfere with social or economic productivity. We're going to see more about that here in just a few minutes. But historians even note uh, that the city of Philippi didn't have a Jewish synagogue in it which which basically means that there weren't even 10 uh, Jewish men or 10 married Jewish men in the entire city uh, and that's what it would have taken to have started a, a synagogue so since there was no synagogue there weren't even 10 believing married Jewish men and this was in a population in Philippi uh, that was somewhere between 10. And 15,000 people. So there's a lot of people in that community with no uh, Jewish synagogue, no church to go to, so to speak. And so what what this teaches us is this teaches us that there really weren't very many people in Philippi who believed in the God of the Bible or who believed in the God of the Jews when Paul and his buddy Silas, Cy guy, uh, showed up to plant a church. Now, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how long the Apostle Paul spent in Philippi preaching the gospel. What I do know is that he visited the city of Philippi at least three different times throughout his uh, church planting journeys, and that Paul really enjoyed uh, kind of a very special Relationship with the Philippian church. And you're gonna see that as we dig into this study. Paul and the Philippian church shared a very special, intimate, close relationship. And now, 10 to 12 years later, of the Apostle Paul is sitting in a jail cell in Rome for preaching the gospel, and he decides to write this letter to this church that he loves dearly. So I want you to take a look just at the first two verses with me. It'll be on the screen. Uh, behind me. look at the way he begins this letter. Philippians chapter one verses one through two. We read, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now now before we move on, I'm going, to, I'm going to ask a question here in a moment. Before we move on, since we're in these two verses right now, uh, look at uh, this first word, servants, in verse 1. And I would just ask you to either highlight it, uh, smiley face it, you know, yeah, put a star on it, underline it, circle it, whatever you do. That word, servants, uh, in verse 1, and also the word, saints, uh, in verse 1, just a few words over. So servants and saints— and then down in verse two, do the same thing: circle, highlight, underline the word grace and the word peace. And then finally, uh, the phrase at the very end of verse two, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to spend some time thinking about those words as we work our way through um, this opening line, this greeting. And that's the question uh, I want us to start with. After you've underlined those, is this: what's in a greeting? What do you think about that? What What's in a greeting? Like uh, we typically uh, read the greeting in a letter uh, or maybe in an email uh, very dismissively, right? Kind of just read the greeting and kind of move right on. We kind of view a greeting uh, very much like a courteous, kind of like a, a social construct, it's just something that, that should be there. Uh, um, if you think about it, when we see somebody in the grocery store, what do we do? We, we say hi. How you doing today? Right. That's that's our greeting, and then we enter into this kind of courteous, uh, surface-level conversation that we're accustomed to. Right. It's not wrong. It's just part of the way we are conditioned as a society, and so it's easy because of that to read Paul's greeting. Uh, in very much the same way, right? Barely give this greeting a passing glance, right? And I believe that every word of Paul's greeting here is intentionally seasoned in the gospel. Paul, Paul's not using his words carelessly. He's sitting in a prison. His time is short. The people that he's writing to are precious, and the God that he wants to proclaim is majestic, So uh, these opening words, actually, I think, and I think you're going to see this too, uh, hold tons of significance for us today. So that's the question, though, is is what is the significance of what Paul is writing here? What's in this greeting? Uh, To to grasp the depth of what Paul is writing here, uh, we need to ask some interpretive questions, okay? Uh, We need to ask, Who are the recipients? Who will be hearing the opening words of this letter? Who's going to hear all the words of this letter when it gets read to the Philippian church? You might even ask, like, who's going to be sitting in that church family hearing this letter read? What was Paul's relationship with the recipients of this letter? What are some of the main themes? What are some of the main issues that Paul wants to address in this church family? And how, how does Paul's greeting here in these first two verses even begin to scratch the surface or kind of like open up the layers of what he wants to say throughout the letter? And then finally, last question we've got to ask is why does this even matter to us, right? It's a question you want to ask every time you read the Bible is why does it matter, what difference is it going to make, and how are these verses going to help us? The problem with us sometimes when it comes to interpretation is that we oftentimes want to ask that question first. What's this saying to me? What's this mean to me? What difference is it going to make in my life? Does it even connect with me? Right? And that's really the last question we should be asking because we need to get our minds and our hearts into the text so that the text can then speak to our hearts. So I want to start with the first question. Question number one, who are the recipients and what was Paul's relationship to them? We're going to spend some significant time here building out the context. Okay? So oftentimes... We read the Bible uh, without any knowledge of who the author of that book is and who he's actually writing to. Uh, We read the words of the Bible oftentimes through our own social constructs. We import meaning into the text that really doesn't belong there. Uh, We typically, uh, here in the West, as Americans, we read the Bible through these lenses of our Western American ideology. And I know that makes people really uncomfortable when I say things like that, but it's actually true. And so it's actually really important for us to do the hard work of interpreting biblical theology. Uh, This would be similar um, if we were just to continue reading the Bible through the lens of our Western American ideology, rather than doing the hard work of biblical theology. If that's the way we approach the Bible, it's similar to uh, somebody reading a letter, uh, like a love letter, right? That, that I wrote to my wife. It would be similar to somebody reading that uh, that letter without doing any of the hard work of getting to know me or getting to know my wife or getting to know the issues that we were facing in our lives that we're trying to talk about in the letter, and then just taking pieces up out of that letter and taking it out of context and trying to apply it to somebody else's marriage in a way that I never intended someone to do. See, it's not faithful even to the author of the text to read in that way. So we got to ask this question, who are the recipients of this letter and what is Paul's relationship to them? So we already know. Uh, We already know that Paul planted the church in Philippi 10 to 12 years earlier. We know that Philippi was a largely unchurched population. We know that the culture of Philippi was similar to ours. uh, Not exactly the same, but similar to ours. In its really fervent devotion to religious freedom. So long as... Your religious freedom doesn't step on anybody else's toes. That may or may not be the same as our context today, but that's basically the way it was there in Philippi. And we also know that Paul is writing the letter from prison, right? He's in chains for preaching the gospel. The question is, how do you put flesh and skin, how do you put faces on the people in the church family at how do you get a sense of what Paul's relationship with some of the people in this church family are? Well one of the main rules of biblical interpretation and I would say interpreting anything really um, is the rule of context. okay? Context, context, context. I hope you can say this wherever you're at with me, context, context, context. It is one of the most important pieces of biblical interpretation. The problem for us is that we get lazy in our Bible reading. After we start walking with Jesus for like 15 minutes, Um, and from that point forward, we just do these quick little three-minute devotions, and we don't give the time for God's Word to speak to us. And context, context, context is one of the basic rules that will help us to actually spend the appropriate amount of time hearing from God. And what context, context, context simply means is that we have to put on our discovery hats. Put on your put on little discovery hats, do a, a little bit of investigation. You do some searching in the context of the Bible to see what else you can learn about the people that Paul is writing to. And the best place to learn uh, more about these people in Philippi is to turn back to the book of Acts and look at chapter 16. So, you can go ahead and turn there now with me. Uh, I, it's not going to be on the screen, so I would uh, encourage you, if you're actually in the book of Philippians, uh, in an actual Bible, <laughs> uh, like a paper Bible like I have in front of me, you're going to turn back to the left to find Acts 16. Um, if you're on your phone with your Bible, then it's much easier because you can just type it in. So Acts 16 is the place to go um, when trying to find out who these people are in Philippi. Uh, in Acts chapter 16, I'll uh, do a brief, a, a brief flyby here. In Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul is basically on a mission. You'll see this in kind of the first few verses, uh, like verses uh, 6 through 12. is kind of what I'm looking at. Paul is um, on a mission to preach the gospel throughout Asia. And he's got his buddy, Cy guy with him, Silas. Uh, when the Holy Spirit comes and prevents him from going where he wants to go. And the Holy Spirit redirects them through a vision to go to the city of Philippi. This is, again, Acts 16, 6 through 12. And the question I think that's interesting for us to ask is like, how often have you wanted to do something really good, uh, but then you were prevented from doing it only to find out later that something more important needed to happen? There was something more important that you needed to be doing. See, we're living in a season right now, Uh, when many of us desperately want to do something different than what we're doing right now, right? But but for some unforeseen reason, uh, we know that it's because of a virus, but there is an unseen reason that the Lord has locked us up in our homes and has us practicing this whole social distancing thing. There must be something more important in God's mind right now than allowing us to gather physically as a church family? What could he be up to? So that, that's essentially what happens when Paul arrives in Philippi, right? He wanted to go to Asia, uh, but the Lord decided that Philippi was more important, more essential, since that's a popular word right now, more essential right now. The first person. Look at the first person that Paul encounters in Philippi. You'll see this in verses 13 through 15. Fifteen. He uh Uh, Encounters a woman named Lydia. Who was Lydia? Lydia, according to the text, was a saleswoman who feared God. She sold fine cloth and, and she attended a place of prayer down by the river, which again reinforces the idea that there was no synagogue in town. But Lydia was a woman who did fear God, and at least she believed. That he existed. And so when she heard the Apostle Paul preaching, the text tells us in verse 14 that God opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, that's a really important observation for us to make as we make our flyby. Because it reminds us that salvation is a sovereign work of God. Lydia did not open her own heart to the gospel. If she was able to open her own heart, she would have something to boast about, something to hold on to in terms of her own salvation. But because we read this, that God opened her heart to pay attention to what was said, then at the end of the day, we see this act of grace by the hand of a sovereign God who opens a heart so that we might... Respond. God opened her heart and she becomes the first Philippian believer in the church at Philippi. And after Lydia becomes a Christian, what happens? If you look down through the rest of the verses, you see that she gets baptized, along with her entire household, as a public display of her new relationship with Jesus. And then what does she do? She begs Paul and Silas to stay with her for a while and to attend some of these prayer meetings down by the river. It's a really fascinating interaction, and what it looks like when a new believer gets really excited about following Jesus. So notice who Paul and Silas meet next. Verses 16 through 22. Notice who they meet next. Paul and Silas, right? They're, they're headed down to the river with Lydia to pray. They meet this demon-possessed slave girl. Well, that's kind of crazy, right? They meet a demon-possessed slave girl, as she keeps crying out at the top of her lungs that Paul and Silas are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Verses 16 and 17. Now, it's important that you underline some words here These verses. Okay, I want you to underline the word slave in verse 16 and the word servants in verse 17. The word slave in verse 16 and the word servants in verse 17. We're going to come back to those words later, but for now, just want you to notice this girl, she keeps following Paul and Silas around. And she's causing a ton of disruption. So the text actually tells us that in verse 18 that Paul gets super annoyed, right? And he commands the demon to come out of the slave group. Man, I wish I could have been there and seen that moment. I think it would be pretty fascinating. Um, he commands the demon to come out of this slave girl. And immediately this slave girl is set free from the demonic oppression that she's been under. And what that means is that, means that her slave owners can no longer use her. They can no longer exploit her difficult circumstances for their own use and their own gain. That's important. See, this is where Paul's exercise of his religious freedom gets on the nerves of the people in Philippi. What do they do? They drag Paul and Silas... In front of the city officials, they, they accuse them of disturbing the peace. They have them beaten to a bloody pulp. They get them thrown in jail. That's a, a rough day of ministry, right? That was a rough day of ministry for Paul and Silas. Uh, could these uh, circumstances really be better than sharing the gospel in Asia? Like, if I'm Paul, I might be thinking that Dude, Lord, I wanted to go to Asia. Uh, you sent me to Philippi. First day here. I, I get the crap of me and I'm in jail. Um, that's a rough day. It might be where you or I would be tempted to go. Sure, that's where Paul was tempted to go. Um, but look at the way he actually goes, right? The Apostle Paul now has a relationship with this saleswoman named Lydia also has a relationship with this previously demon-possessed slave girl who knows that Paul is a servant of God who proclaims salvation. And again, to top things off, he and Silas, they've been beaten to a bloody pulp in the city streets, and now they're getting ready to go to jail. So who's the next person that they meet? Who's the next person that joins the Philippian church plant? It's a pretty fascinating story when you think about it. Because um, when you look at verses 25 through 40, We see the story of the Philippian jailer. He's the dude that throws Paul and Silas into a jail cell. And when this happens, what do Paul and Silas do, right? How do they react to what's happening? Paul and Silas begin to sing praise songs to the Lord in this jail cell. And and then a massive earthquake opens the cell doors and the jailer almost kills himself and then Paul stops him. That's a pretty action-packed evening. All of this causes the jailer to ask this famous question in verse 30. It's a question that... I, as a pastor, and I know many other believers love to hear. It's the question that most of us ask the first time we begin following the Lord. What must I do to be saved? He asked that question. And to that, Paul and Silas, um, and they explain the gospel, and the jailer and all of his household believe, and then they're baptized as a public expression of their faith, and they become members in this new Philippian church. So, Rough day of ministry becomes a fruitful day of ministry for Paul and Silas. And the little seeds of the Philippian church are planted in these three people's hearts. So now we know a little bit about the recipients of the letter to the Philippians. Uh, We know a little bit about Paul's relationship to them. Paul was the servant of the Most High God. He proclaimed the gospel to a saleswoman named Lydia uh, he proclaimed the gospel to a previously demon-possessed slave girl. And he proclaimed the gospel to a jailkeeper. And these three people then made up the core team of this Philippian church plan. These three people, right, they're no doubt sitting in the room when they heard the opening words of the letter to the Philippian church, right? So think about that. They're, they're sitting in that room most likely. Before we go back to the opening words of the letter, though, I want to take a look at some of the main issues. So we're going to jump back into uh, Philippians. We're going to look at some of the main issues that Paul is going to address as he goes through the letter so that we can then come back and take a look at um, how the greeting connects to all this. So what are some of the main issues, some of the main themes that Paul wants to address? That's the next question we're going to ask. What are some of the main issues? What are some of the main themes that Paul wants to address? Here's the thing. Nobody writes a letter to someone else without having a purpose for the letter. There's always a purpose, always a reason. There's always meaning in a letter. I write letters to my wife. And I write letters to my kids occasionally to, to basically let them know that I love them. Things that I love about them. Ways to encourage them. Sometimes I write letters or emails to our church family, right? And I write those letters, those emails, to address certain issues and to give specific instructions about things. And the Apostle Paul, he's writing this letter for some very specific purposes, some very specific issues and themes that he wants to address. And there are basically three major issues, and there's basically three major instructions. You could uh, call them major issues and antidotes, okay? So let's take a look at these real quick. Major issue number one that Paul wants to address is self-centeredness and pride. He wants to address self-centeredness and pride in the Philippian church. If you look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, the Apostle Paul addresses this issue of self-centeredness and pride when he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, apparently, the Philippian church had begun to backslide into selfish pursuits. They were becoming concerned only about their own self-interests. They were beginning to forget that other people have needs too. Look at major issue number two. Major issue number two is complaining and arguing. Okay? Philippians 2, 14 through 15, the Apostle Paul addresses this issue of complaining and arguing when he says, hey, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted Generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So apparently, uh, the Christians in the Philippian church, they were becoming known as complainers and arguers in their community. Uh, they were beginning to look just like the uh, crooked and the twisted generation they lived among. And Paul wanted to address this why. Because they're complaining and they're arguing, it was becoming a nasty black eye. It was becoming a gross stain. It was becoming a dark shadow over their public reputation. These people claimed to know Jesus, but the community around them knew them as complainers and arguers. Let that sink in. Like, when I realize this, when I read this, it hits deep for me. Look at major issue number three. Major issue number three is uh, disagreement and division. Uh, In Philippians chapter four, uh, you look at verses two through three. The apostle Paul addresses the issue of disagreement and division, division when he says this. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche, two women, Euodia and Syntyche, strange names, nevertheless, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, somebody he's not naming, but somebody who can come in between the two of them. I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. All right? So when you read this, it appears that the church family is becoming known for their disagreements and their divisiveness. You see, what began, You track with me, what began as self-centeredness and pride, it quickly eroded down into complaining and arguing, and then once that all set in, it further eroded into disagreement and division. So let me say it this way. Self-centeredness, rooted in pride, results in complaining, which then leads to all these arguments that produce a ton of disagreements and then finally division, right? This is a crazy black eye on the reputation of any church family. A family that should be known for their innocence, known for their purity, known for their holiness, for their unity, for their selfless love of one another. And not only one another in the church family, but all of those outside the church family should be known for their love for them. That's not how the Philippian church was being known at this point. It was not their reputation. So what's the remedy? right? What's the antidote? What kind of instruction does Paul give to be an antidote to this infection that he sees creeping into this church family that he loves so dearly? There's three antidotes to the three infections we see. Antidote number one, put on the mind of Christ, okay? Anecdote number one, put on the mind of Christ. You go back to Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. The Apostle Paul says that the Philippians can cure this infection of self-centeredness and pride deep within them if they just simply have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Catch that word. Servant. Being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. So the antidote for this infection of self-centeredness and pride. Is putting on the selfless servant mind of Christ That honestly, we already possess if we are believers. Look at the second antidote. Antidote number two. Work out your own salvation in Christ. Philippians 2, verses 12-13. through The Apostle Paul says that the Philippians can cure this infection of complaining and arguing if they just simply listen to Paul. Just listen to Paul when he says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, the the antidote uh, for my complaining, the antidote for my tendency to be an arguer who loves to win fights the antidote for those two infections that Paul's talking about um, is to work out my own salvation. Now, this doesn't mean that we work for our salvation. Also, doesn't mean that we don't share the gospel with others. This means that we work to grow in purity and in holiness because we are saved. You see, this is what God is working inside of each one of us, and it brings him great pleasure to do that work in us. In other words, what we need to do is we need to pay attention to our own growth. I need to pay attention to my own growth in holiness. And when I do that, I'll stop complaining. I'll stop arguing with everyone around me. I'll start talking about how I need to repent of certain specific things in my life instead of constantly complaining and constantly arguing about how everybody else out there needs to repent from what they're doing wrong. You see the shift in focus? Look at antidote number three. Antidote number three that Paul gives us is stand firm in the joy of Christ. And and I would argue that this, this last antidote, I would argue this is probably the center of all of what Paul says, I think, throughout the book of Philippians. I think it's like the center a hub, on a wheel, that all the rest of it kind of spiders out from or spokes out from. I believe this is the core of all that Paul wants to say. Stand firm in the joy of Christ. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 and 4 through 7. The Apostle Paul says the Philippians can actually cure this infection of disagreement and division among them if they just once again simply listen to Paul's words when he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, he caps the the endearment, the love he has, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Jump to verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's a beautiful section of text. The antidote, it teaches us. The antidote for disagreement for division is to stand firm in the joy of Christ, okay? This joy that Paul speaks about, this is the fruit of experiencing the love of Christ welling up in and through him by the power of the Spirit in Christ, right? That's what joy is. It's the fruit of actually experiencing the love of God deep down inside of us. If you know the love of Christ then your are life will exhibit an unquenchable joy that no momentary circumstance can steal. See, here's the thing. Oftentimes, and I'm going to go on a bunch of oftentimes we go back to the fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians, and we want to separate all the fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We want to separate all that like there are a bunch of different pieces of fruit hanging on the tree, and actually the context in Galatians doesn't teach it that way in the original language. The context is actually, Actually, the experience of God's love in Christ Jesus by the power of the Spirit, which results in joy, peace, patience, all of those others, those are all part of the fruit of experiencing God's love. It's actually one large chunk of fruit, and you're looking at it from different angles. So when I say this here, that you have joy bubbling up from within you, it's not like you're just going to go out and like, man, can I get some joy over here? Oh, can I find some joy over there? Hey, where am I going to get some joy at? No, that's stupid. The way that we find joy, the way that we fill up with joy is simply by experiencing the love of God in Christ Jesus, where? At the cross and the empty tomb with the promise of Christ's return. See, disagreement and division are the fruit of hearts that are actually full, not of God's love, Christ's love. They're actually, it's actually fruit of, of a heart that is full of anxiety or a heart that is full of fear, uh, unreasonable expectations, right? How often do you put unreasonable expectations on people around you and then, You're walking in this frustration rather than walking in the love of Christ, which produces joy. See, the fruit of someone who knows the love of Christ is this deep, abiding joy that is enabled by the Spirit of Christ, that is clothed in the peace of God, which surpasses understanding. You see, here's what I want to say. And I want to say this a lot throughout this series. At the center of all of Paul's theology stands the crucified risen, and returning Christ. At the center of all of Paul's theology stands the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. You see, the Apostle Paul has some very specific reasons for writing this letter to the Philippian church. He has very specific issues to address. He has very specific instructions to give. He sees this invisible virus at work in his church family. He loves them dearly. This virus is not only becoming this uh, visible thing in their lives, especially in their ethical interactions with people around them, but it's also becoming this very dangerous um, infection to their spiritual health. Paul didn't just write these words in this letter um, as some quickly thrown together slick statements to print on our so-called Christian t-shirts and coffee mugs. Which, by the way, Philippians is chock full of favor statements, which is fine. That's not why he wrote it, though. Paul wrote this letter because he could see that the church that he loved dearly was degenerating into self-centeredness and pride. And complaining and arguing and disagreement and division. And Paul knew that the only antidote for all of these issues is Christ himself. The Philippian church needed to put on the mind of Christ. They needed to work out their salvation in Christ. They needed to stand firm in the joy of knowing the love of Christ. See, at the center of all of Paul's theology stands the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. So, now that we know who the recipients of the letter are, now that we know what Paul's relationship is to them, now that we know some of the main issues that Paul wants to address, we can return to the greeting at the beginning of the letter. See, when Paul opens this letter, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When he says this, he's packing all of the content of this letter, all of the issues of this letter, all of the answers to those issues in this letter into these opening lines. How do you combat self centeredness? Again, these things are very invisible at times in our lives. They sneak up on us, right? How do you combat self centeredness? How do you combat pride? How do you combat complaining? I mean, we Christians do complain. We just complain differently, right? We complain this really kind of soft. Well, you know, this time just really sucks right now. You know, there's complaining. We complain. How, how, how do you how do you combat arguing? How do you combat disagreements and, and division? How do you help people put on the mind of Christ? How do you help someone work out their own salvation in Christ? How do you help someone stand firm in the joy of Christ? Okay, let me ask that question a different way. Hopefully you'd notice the way I'm asking those questions was asked in an external way. How do I help someone, somebody else, right? Somebody else in our city, somebody else in our country, somebody in our government. How do I help them? The problem there is we get stuck there. And we need to be asking this a different way. How do I combat my own self-centeredness? How do I combat my own pride? My own tendency to complain and argue and disagree and be divisive? How do I put on the mind of Christ? How do I work out my salvation in Christ? How do I stand firm in the joy of Christ. You see, Paul's greeting, those first two verses, answers those questions. Because in Paul's greeting, what do we learn? We learn three things. We are servants, we are slaves, and we are saints. Let me say it again. We are servants, we are slaves, and we are saints. Oh, number four, we are recipients. Servants, slaves, saints, recipients in Christ Jesus. Okay? We are servants of Christ. We are slaves to Christ. We are saints in Christ Jesus. We have received grace and peace from Christ Jesus if we've trusted in his work at the cross and the empty tomb. We're servants of Christ because we've become saints in Christ as recipients of the grace and peace of Christ at the cross and the empty tomb of Christ. Remember when I said that we needed to underline the words servant and slave back in Acts 16. The reason I said that is because those two words mean the same thing in the original language that this letter was written in. Basically, a servant is a slave. And here's the reality. This might shock you, but the reality is this. Anyone whom Jesus saves he enslaves. Anyone whom Jesus saves, he enslaves. Now, he doesn't enslave people in the sense where he will use people for his own selfish gain. He he enslaves people to set them free. That you're enslaved to either darkness or light, you're enslaved to either wrong or good. See, being a servant or being a slave of Christ Jesus is to be a saint in Christ Jesus by the grace and peace of God. God in Christ Jesus. So why does this matter for us, right? Why does this matter? What difference is it going to make in our lives? How does this help us right now? Now, here's my answer to those questions. Um, At the end of the day, uh, there's really something much more dangerous looming in the church uh, than this virus that we call COVID-19. This worldwide pandemic that we're all facing right now, it's definitely dangerous for sure. I'm not going to minimize that. It's deadly, it's devastating. And the church has a unique call on her right now to love our communities well. Part of the way we do that is by staying away from each other, right? But there's something much more dangerous than this virus that we're living in right now. Something much more pervasive. There's something much more deadly than a physical virus, okay? My self-centeredness, your self-centeredness, My pride, your pride, my complaining and your complaining, our arguing, our disagreements, our divisiveness, those things are much more pervasive. They're much more deadly than this physical virus will ever be. Why? Because the consequences of this physical virus pale in comparison with the eternal consequences of the spiritual sickness that I just outlined. And the antidote that my heart needs right now is found in these opening verses of Philippians chapter 1. My mind needs to be set on serving Jesus daily if I'm going to put on the mind of Christ. Is your heart set on serving Jesus daily? My heart needs to rest in my identity as a saint in Jesus, if I'm going to work out my salvation in Christ on a daily basis, I must constantly be a recipient of grace and peace from Jesus if I'm going to stand firm in the joy of Jesus. You see, listen, a servant is a slave, and a saint is is a special recipient of something that he or she does not deserve. How do you view your relationship with Jesus? Because here's the thing. When, when I encounter people who say they are Christians, one of the things that breaks my heart is when I hear folks who say I'm a Christian and they're able to spout off all sorts of other cultural and like American ideological things, but they can't talk about how Jesus is actually speaking to them this week. It breaks my heart simply because I know that the only thing that's going to kill sin inside of Joe Marino is a fresh encounter with Jesus every day. And when I hear a friend who who is unable to talk about the work that Jesus is doing deep inside of his or her heart, it's a concern to me because this holds eternal consequences for that person. See, these heart attitudes, these behaviors, they're not just offensive to God, okay? Okay? They're not just offensive to him. They are actually an all-out assault against God. I stand condemned as an enemy of God in need of reconciliation. And in the process of reconciliation, which is making things right through justification, the offending party, which is me, the enemy, I am expected to pay a fine to cover the damages inflicted upon the victim, Who is God? But there's a problem. God is perfect. And the guilty party, me, I'm not perfect. So I can never pay enough penalties to make things perfectly right. See, this is what is so beautiful about the grace and the peace of the cross of Christ in the message of the gospel. Because in the message of the gospel, the victim, God, he bears the pain of the offense. And he also bears the payment for the crime. See, God in Christ Jesus, listen, he lays down his life to pay the price for my reconciliation and for your reconciliation if you trusted in him. And he seals that deal with an empty tomb, and then he gives all of us the hope of heaven. This is crazy good news. See, the antidote for a physical virus in this season, as good as that would be right now, it pales in comparison with the fact that God paid the price for my sin against him so that I, so that you could belong to him. That kind of grace, that kind of mercy is what Paul opens up with. He wants to take the Philippians' heart and he wants to turn their heart's attention away from all of the big bad stuff out there, all the disagreements, all the arguments, all the division, and He wants to turn them back inside and say, look inside of your heart and see what's inside there. And see how deep the grace and the mercy of God is for you. All of my self-centeredness, all my pride, all my complaining, all my arguments, all my disagreements, all my divisiveness, they are at once wiped completely clean when I trust in Jesus as my Savior. What happens in that moment is something that we call transformation. I'm transformed in that moment into a servant, a slave, and a saint. As a recipient of the grace and peace of God and the work of Christ Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb. I can now put on the mind of Christ as I work out my own salvation in Christ, as I stand firm in the joy of Christ. You see, at the center of all biblical theology stands the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. That, my friends, is what's in a greeting. That's what's in a greeting. Christ standing in the center. I'll leave you with a few questions. Time is running short. Like, Where have you succumbed or surrendered to this elusive temptation towards self-centeredness and pride and complaining and arguing, disagreement and divisiveness? Would you be honest enough in your quiet moments with the Lord to, to, to confess that to him? And then would you take it a step further and be honest enough to confess that specifically to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Because scriptures are clear that we are to confess our sins one another, not the sins of the world around us. We're called to confess our sins to one another. Where do you need to put on the mind of Christ? How do you need to be working out your own salvation in Christ right now? What would it look like for you to stand firm in the joy of the love of Christ? What does it mean for you to be a servant, a slave, a saint? A recipient of the grace and peace of God in Christ Jesus. What it look like for you to allow the crucified and risen and returning Christ to be the rightful center of your world. It's been said that Paul's letter to the Philippian church is the most personal letter he wrote. It's also the letter that overflows the most with joy, despite the fact that he's. Writing from a prison cell. He knows that self-centeredness, rooted in pride, results in complaining and arguing that produces disagreements and division. He knows that the virus that has infected his beloved Philippians is deadly powerful. But here's the thing about the Apostle Paul that continues to bubble up throughout this letter. He doesn't live in despair. He doesn't live in despair or defeat. Why? Because he personally knows the powerful love of God in Christ Jesus. He lives there. He knows that the antidote is more powerful than the infection. He knows that to be a servant of Christ is to be a slave of Christ who is a saint in Christ Jesus. Why? Because of the grace and the peace of Christ that was purchased at the bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb in light of the hope of heaven you see joy is overflowing in Paul despite his circumstances it's joy in lockdown and the reason you see this here is because the apostle Paul has kept the crucified risen and returning Christ at the center of his heart and mind so this once again my friends is what's in a greeting I pray it blesses you and I pray the Lord does work in each of our hearts through this text. I want to pray. And then Charity and I are going to sing a song for you to wrap this up. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we do thank you um, for your care, your correction, your concern over us. Father, we thank you that you would, um, through Paul, write a love letter. Um, really a love letter from Paul to his church family, but really, a bigger level. It's a love letter from you to them to us. Help us to hear your words of loving embrace and loving correction. You you know us completely and you know all the filthiness in our lives and yet you draw us close to you and you call us yours. I pray, Father, that that kind of mercy and grace would radically transform our hearts today. Trust you with that in Jesus' name. Amen.